Our Gospel reading this morning is from that of the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. If you'd like to follow along, it's printed in your bulletin insert. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. God of light and wonder and mystery and presence, we give you thanks for the gift of our very lives. We give you thanks for the ability to be here this morning, to listen, to reflect. We pray that your spirit would so be poured upon both the reading and hearing of these words that we might hear your word for us this day. And I would pray that the preaching of these words might be clear like a window with the blinds open. We make all these prayers in the power of your many names. Amen. Listen for God's word. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw that it was Jesus. And he said to them again, Peace be with you. As God has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the rabbi. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of those nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. Here ends the lesson. As I was reflecting on this text yesterday on my way to the gym, actually, um, I thought to myself, I wonder how many DTs we have in the congregation today. And by DTs, I mean Doubting Thomases. You know, the thing I love about this text is that it is just so human. And maybe that says more about me than it says about you. But there have been times in my life where I have been a Doubting Thomas, where I needed to see something, I needed to experience something, I needed to have something proven to me before I believed it. This was particularly true when I was a biology pre-med major focusing on ophthalmology. My life has changed a bit since then. But as you know, the mystery of faith and the message of this text is about believing without seeing. Believe in without needing all those requirements we set up as 
ways to limit us from believing and limit us from faith. Have you ever done that? I have, probably more than I'd like to admit. But underneath this, and I think the core of the text really is about not being in control. For belief and faith really is always about never being in control. And all of us really love to be in control. But this is the message of Easter, the message of resurrection. Believing something you can't prove, quantify, or really explain. Reminds me back in 1997 when John and I went with, our, with the Franciscans to Italy. It was our first pilgrimage overseas. And the Franciscans opened up an entirely new notion for me, and that was the spirituality of place, secundum traditiotum, sacred tradition, meaning that a particular site or particular events that take place in a particular site may not be actually factually true, but doesn't mean that they're not so. Now, for those of us in the West, we have found this difficult to grasp because we've, we've divorced ourselves from mystery and we love to put our trust in science. And, you know, that in and of itself is not a bad thing, but if it blocks us from mystery, it's not a good thing. So think for a moment of your stories of your families the particular oral tradition of your families of origin. There are in you internal narratives of the events of your life that are a part of your molecules, of your very being. They're in you cellularly. Are they all actually factual? Maybe. Maybe not. But are they true? Absolutely. So, Hang in there with me for a bit. So take, for example, that there's a story around one particular family's Thanksgiving dinner that's been told year after year after year about grandma accidentally flinging the turkey across the table to her sister when she tried to use an electric knife for the first time. <laughs> Did that happen? Something happened. Did she really fling the turkey? Probably not. And how about Uncle Mark's behavior at your sister's wedding? Was he really as embarrassing as the story has taken on over the years? Or how about the way your father proposed to your mother? Who knows for certain what is actually factual? What we do know is that something took place, and this is true. Now, I'm going to tell a story of myself, and some of you know this. It took place at Companions on the Innerway at Sierra Madre a number, a number of years ago when Howard Rice was still alive. And Father Pat, it's a Catholic retreat center, and Father Pat allowed us to use these acrylic, they were his, acrylic candlesticks. Lou has heard this story before. And I had a relationship with Father Pat, and he said, I will let you use these. I don't let anyone else ever use these. So I felt kind of special. Um, so during the healing service, I had one of these. There were three-foot, four-foot, five-foot, and six-foot acrylic candlesticks, and you could stick things in them, fabric and 
ornaments and leaves. But I had one by each of the different healing stations, and I told Howard, and Howard Rice was in a wheelchair, very important. I told Howard to be very careful because there was a four-foot acrylic candlestick behind him, behind his healing station. Well, Howard rolled back, the candle fell, dripped down the entire length of this particular candlestick. Huh. So I knew I couldn't scrape it off because that would scratch it. And the only thing that I could figure out, now later people said, well, you could have used a hairdryer, but... Um, so I took it in the shower with me. So I closed all the windows, and I had the shower as hot as I could possibly stand it. And I'm there in my all-together with this four-foot acrylic candlestick, and it's melting down. You know, the, it's actually working. The wax is coming off. And the fire alarm, smoke alarm, was set off because it was so hot in the room. So I run out, not thinking very clearly, I run out with my candlestick and nothing else, doing this to the smoke alarm, and then housekeeping comes. And, well, it was pretty embarrassing. Well, I have told this story on myself over the years, and others have told this story, and because I have told this story so often at Companions, never from a pulpit, <laughs> I've started thinking, is this actually true? I mean, did this happen the way that I remember it had happened? I don't know. But the story is true. So have you ever told stories about you that are your own stories or stories about your children or your partners or your, your parents that take on a life of their own? I think we all have. So what happened in that upper room that night, we will never know for certain. But we do know that something happened that changed Thomas's questions and doubts to belief. Did the events actually happen the way it's recorded in the Gospel of St. John? Who knows? And does it matter? I don't think it does. But what does matter is that the story is a container of something that is true that changed people's lives. The disciples' experience and the retelling of the story of that experience has become part of the story of faith of the Christian family, and it's part of our story now. Just like your family stories, though they get exaggerated, expanded upon, taking on the life of their own, they are part of the container of your particular story, your particular story of faith. And this is core to belief. When the story of faith becomes my story, when the miracles and experiences that I read about in Scripture become part of the miracles and experiences of my life, they become part of the story of my existence. Secundum traditiotum is part of the sacred tradition of who I am, of who we are. It's how we understand ourselves and our place in the world. Like this morning, we're going to baptize Lori and Matt's son. Now, what will the stories be? What will the stories be told of this event in the decades ahead? We will never know. But whatever is told will become part of the sacred container 
of Owen's own particular story, part of Owen's story of faith. You see, we have shared stories and shared memories that are passed on to us and passed through us. Are they exact word-for-word events of what happened? Probably not, but are they true? Absolutely. So why would we doubt that God made us in love to love one another? Why would we doubt that peace, shalom, can become a reality in human relationships and around this planet? Why do we doubt resurrection when we experience resurrection all the time in our lives? Every time we love another person, that is resurrection. Every time another person really comforts us and offers compassion, that is resurrection. Every time our hearts shimmer at an incredible piece of music or art or sunset, that is resurrection. Thomas doubted, and I, for one, am glad we know that he did, because I do, because we do. The Western church, unfortunately, has used Thomas as a scapegoat, somehow saying that doubting is not faithful, whereas the Eastern Orthodox church They don't have a doubting Thomas. They call him and understand him as believing Thomas. It was believing Thomas who questioned. It was believing Thomas who doubted. As I've said before, quoting Frederick Buechner, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps us moving, questioning, believing, uncomfortable. And then to Thomas, Jesus said those amazing words, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This isn't a verdict on doubting. It is an affirmation of believing. Doubt, then, is an essential component of faith. Doubt is necessary for faith. Doubt gives us perspective and allows us to see things differently, to open up the apertures of our heart and our minds, to experience people and situations in ways that we hadn't thought was possible. You know, nearly 1,500 years before Thomas, Moses looked at a bush that burned, and in it saw God. Now, there's a Jewish story that says that nothing was really extraordinary about that particular bush. All bushes burn because all bushes hold the presence of God. It was just on that day that Moses took time to look, and because he took the time, he saw He opened himself to mystery, and he encountered it. And my friends, the same can be true for us. So much of faith, belief, is directly related to seeing, to looking, to taking time. So much of faith and belief is entering into the sacred story that we know as scripture in such a way that the sacred Story becomes part of our story. And this is what we're celebrating at Owen's baptism. Not a faith that's finished, but a faith that's beginning. Matt and Lori have no idea if Owen will come to faith when he is an adult. But their belief in presenting Owen for baptism is that faith 
will follow, that he'll experience a love for him that is stronger than death. And this, my friends, is resurrection.